do within those, those contexts. I love it. So you are um, the first person to actually be like live, right? So normally I do these over Zoom or whatnot. Um, and we have chosen to do this in a bar that's actually open. Yes, it is. So. Mercifully, not not terribly busy, no. but um, yeah, well, we are. It's, it's been well prepared. Yeah, uh, pre-trained, <laughs> pre-trained, <Yes>. pre-lubricated. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Of course, it, it's only you know one on a Tuesday, so that's true. You know, and, we'll, we'll yeah, see uh, you're already drinking gin. I only drink no, no, vodka, vodka. Oh, it's vodka okay. and coffee. Okay, coffee Usually, too. gin with yeah. lime, but you like you like lime with vodka. Yes, yeah. a good deal. Yeah, okay. Vodka sodas, lime. Yeah, that's a good deal. And I'm just drinking coffee. I'm going to probably have a scotch here in a minute, it's just well, in good. case in case we need a little bit of extra, uh, you know, inspiration. No, absolutely, absolutely. Like when I when I do these, uh, like even via Zoom, I always have uh, three things. I've got a huge glass of water. I've got a vodka soda, like it's my backup, and always a cup of coffee. Right, sounds good. Well, this is a time for coffee for me. I'm usually not a scotch hour, but I've kind of devoted this day to like kind of freewheel, and so I'm ready to ready to go with whatever happens. <laughs> right. So what what nobody knows is that um, I, I stupidly booked like three interviews, like back to back, okay. to back to back. And now um, they do know. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, um, at least one of those is going to fall by. Okay. Sorry, Dave. Um, we'll get back to that eventually, but. Good. Um, so I had technical issues when I first started out, and then when Jim came in, I had more technical issues right. and whatever. So I hopefully we're fine now. Um, we will play that by ear. Um, I'm like I'm not exactly what you call a tech person. I'm sort of a person that survived amazingly in a digital age and absolutely not very adept at tech stuff. So I just kind of I do my thing and. and Luckily, everything else is fairly user-friendly. Otherwise, right. I'm, I'm pretty well screwed. So, right. Well, I mean, like, you know, <laughs> you actually know the difference between the, the different microphones. Well, I know about boards because right? I've used those little suckers. And I've done, it, it's the long gone are the days where you have, like, to be a rock star, you have, like, a, a full PA and roadies and a light set up and all that stuff. You just basically go into places with a little PA that's, you know, some powered speakers and one of those little kind of boxes like that and then you do your show and you sort of get used to doing it and and you try to keep this simple as possible and luckily for me i don't like a lot of effects on either my guitar or my vocals so i like everything really dry and like to work with whatever's going on in the room mm -hmm. and i just get the sound i want and from my guitar amp and my guitar and boom that's it you know that's kind of how i do it i work with other people that have little effects and things like that that's their business but um, right you know i just basically try to keep it real simple so i can understand it and also yeah. it kind of works better in the long run because the more you kind of aim it to what the room is the better it sounds like if you try to set up a sound that sounds good at live aid and then play it like at the you know at the at the postage stamp punk bar it's going to kind of sound right. bad Right. It, it, it reminds me, like, uh, the last interview I did right before I chatted with you was Gary Lee Connor from Screaming Trees. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things he talked about was when they were recording their, their first album, and it was Steve Fisk, right, and they were doing mm -hmm. it in Ellensburg, and he saw a picture. Steve Fisk is a friend of my brother-in-law's, and I like Steve a lot. He's, He's a right? wonderful human. Okay. Um, and anyway, so he, Gary saw a picture of it, like, 30 years later, and it's like a little 8-track. Right, a little you know, interact with Porter, and he's like, it, it's like he looked like he's got two hands on an iPad, right? Mm -hmm. Like in comparison to like what you know how things are now, um, 
and we made we were talking about like how expensive a tracks were in like 1985 like i mean they were you know studios might have 16 or 24 tracks it's super it was super big, big, that was a big deal sure. yeah absolutely like i remember i had a a four track four tracks around the same time yeah and it was but that was those also kind of half the size deal. of this table yeah like i mean it was huge. i remember those <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been through all this, and you know, it was a lot of fun to play with. But you, the, those people who were on those, like you know, sixteen or twenty-four track boards, were—I mean, they were gods. Like, I mean, how can you possibly keep track of all of that? You know, and now you've got digital studios where they have like you know, one hundred twenty-eight tracks. Yeah, which is insane. Yeah, I don't even know what that is, but that's okay. <laughs> also, I have other people that are friends of mine that know how to operate that stuff. I just kind of show up with my saw, which is a lot of work actually. Well, yeah, of and then and then uh, and then with my guitar, and then I have ideas about what musicians to do on it, and then usually the engineer kind of tells me what is feasible or not. So. I just realized we, we talked for about six minutes now, and, and I haven't introduced you at all. Okay, go ahead and introduce Sorry, me. sorry, Jim. I'm fine with that. Um, part of it is Jim is, is an old friend of mine, so you know mm-hmm. it gets it, it's hard to understand that other people don't know you know who the hell he is. So well, there's no friend like an old friend. That's exactly right. <laughs> I, literally and figuratively, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so Jim. I first met you in what, like 2005? I want to say yeah, four or five somewhere. I, I, I was probably yeah, right around there. Huh? Yeah, right after um, yeah, yep, yep, that. Yep. And so the reason that that I met Jim was he had uh, a band called the Mo Release, which I had heard of, uh-huh. which I loved a lot. Cool. Um, but you were then promoting um, the Jim Bassman thing. I want to say yep. at that point. That was probably yeah. then, but I was also a little bit earlier than that was the Jim Bassman thing. So. I had a couple of other records and stuff. I'm not sure if it wasn't earlier than 2005. It might have been like, like 98 or 99, maybe. No, 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 no. When, when <laughs> you and I met, yeah, yeah, it was 2004 or five, somewhere yeah. in there. It's all a real big blur to me because, um, you know, it basically, I've been working constantly as a live musician person to actually make a living playing live most for most of my income for, for about 25 years, and in this market up here. And to do that, it requires a lot of driving, and it requires a lot of gigs, a lot of nights, and a lot of, you know, just kind of deals with booking and musicians and practices and learning tunes and people flaking out and getting subs and just going out and dealing with them, getting in relationships with people in different towns and kind of having friends and, you know, just kind of making everything work and whatnot. So right. I kind of lost track of a lot of different details. So yeah, no, I, I totally get that. <laughs> and in, in in the process of that, since about 2003, kind of like taming down a lot of my worst habits and things like that, so I could actually function with all the demands of all the hard work I put into it. Sure. No, of course, of course. <laughs> so and and we skipped a lot over a bunch of stuff just by even jumping into the the Moberlies and, and yeah. Jim Bassman and thing. Um, I think when when I first met you or actually right before i met you um i did some research and i was like okay yeah i do know the mobile ones um but just kind of been passing right like i i it was a little bit before my time here in seattle mm-hmm. um and then i i did some research and, and that's when i find out about the demise 
Yeah, right. It's pronounced mice, but no big deal. Okay. Well, I mean, I would say and that's niece. fine. That's perfectly fine. Which is funny because Kurt Block had the the Mises, right? I think he worked with the Mises. They were called my Mises or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that might be. And then uh, I think I did see that name. And then uh, Kurt and I go way back too. Uh, he had a band called The Cheaters with his brother Al, who played in the Mo release for a while, and is also a good friend of mine. So played in the band right after the Mo release broke up, pretty much for a very long time. Um, that was in L.A. with a bunch of friends of mine. So I'm I'm buddies with the Block family and their their crew. Um, so and uh, yeah, Kurt. Um, we had we, we did a lot of gigs together actually over time and, uh, and this Edmonds town reminds me of the Edmonds theater we had this theater over there we were playing this promoter guy that was that we the Moberlies met down through the Harvard exit mm-hmm. down Capitol Hill oh yeah um he it was whose guy who ran that was a guy named Art Bernstein who's still alive thankfully and I know his kids Nils Bernstein Pear Bernstein and uh, oh really that yeah. that thing yeah oh that's interesting and, and actually um Art kind of introduced me to these guys uh this guy named Norm Caldwell the late Norm Caldwell who was a kind of a sort of a hippie leftist kind of a dude that was kind of you know translating into the 80s a little bit it was actually 79 at that time anybody was still kind of coming from that place he was kind of a fun guy and uh he got this theater out here. He said, look, we want to do rock and roll movies mm-hmm. with rock bands. And that was the Edmonds Theater, this theater that's still right. going over here. Um, and we're going to bring in, like, cool rock and roll movies, like Beatles movies, Hendrix, and just whatever, and, like, old rock and roll. They're gonna, they brought in a, a really good copy of The Girl Can't Help It, which was this 50s rock and roll film, sort of the state of the art technically a 50s rock and roll films that had gene vincent eddie cochran little richard and a bunch of other really cool acts in it and they had that show which was at that point sort of a re you hadn't really been in release or anything for a long time so it's kind of like a new film sort of an artifact of a past era and outside of the elvis films there really wasn't anything that technically good of those original rockers right and so uh, he brought it, brought that in, and uh, and then we were supposed to play like after the film or before the film. They showed the film twice, and then we do like these thirty, I think forty minute sets in between the showings of the movie. Right, and they had that running for like you know a week straight of this of this movie being shown, and then us playing, and we got the cover of the local Seattle Times and Seattle PI. Uh, you know, art section and a bunch of people talking about it. So this whole new concept is have bands come. They started other bands started doing the same thing. They brought the Heats, who were a brand new band then, right. out to do it. And the Cowboys, who okay, wait, wait, let's know. back up here. Just yeah, all this. It reminds me of that whole year. And, you, and the Cheaters played that too. Right. So you okay. and I can throw these band names out, okay. and the majority of people Nobody's probably have no idea no. what we're talking. Nobody's about. Gonna know. Nobody barely knows me, but if you know me, you know, God bless you. Right, exactly. If you don't know me, I'm that's, here to tell you that I exist. Right, and that's part of the reason we're doing this, because, you know, <laughs> there we go. you're a national treasure. So, Thank you for saying um, that's nice. I, I think, so let's I'd sell for an Indianola treasure. Well, you know, hey, Indianola and Edmonds. And that? Edmonds. I'm going to sell right. for an Edmonds Maybe treasure. Linwood, if you're lucky. No. That's no, no Linwood. Linwood. No. <laughs> I'm going to stand off on Linwood. And fuck you, Everett. So, none of that. <laughs> Never, ever, Everett. Right, exactly, exactly. I'm just kidding. I like Everett and Linwood too. Um, <laughs> but I can tell you a lot of stories about them. Might turn your turn your hair. Oh, no, no, I, I'm sure we could probably talk for three hours just about those stories. Um, yeah. 
so backing up here a little bit. So first of all, Seattle, when, when you were first starting out, yeah. was, and people don't really recognize this, was very nascent, right? I, I guess I'd that's say, probably the best that's word That's a very good word, yeah. Um, and it wasn't until Somewhat a decade and a half but, after, yeah. basically, that, that uh -huh. people actually even gave a fuck about what anybody was saying in Seattle. That's right. Um, so the example I give is I moved here in 85 uh -huh. okay. and didn't really get into the music stuff here until 87, I would say. It's funny because you and I are buddies, but you moved here just as I moved away. I moved away with the mobile to L.A. in, in like, I was it April or something like that of 85. Mm -hmm. So when did you move here in 85? I, I want to say it was probably the summer of 85. Okay, so yeah, like right after we moved away. Yeah. yeah. I came to visit a few times and did gigs and stuff, but, but Mobley's were sort of not really a real regular right. local band after like, you know, something like April. Right. So what I was going to say is the first band I remember seeing, mm -hmm. probably not the first band I did see, but the first band I remember seeing mm -hmm. um, was down at, at um, Seattle Center, Whatever that outside. I thought you were going to say down is. at Max's. I was thinking no, no, Wayne no, County. No, no, no. no. <laughs> um, Seattle Center, like right okay. the, where they did Pain in the Grass and all that stuff right. later. The, the, what is that called? The Mural Theater. Mural Amphitheater. Yes. Yeah. And so the first band I saw was Variant Cause. Okay. And I, for like a year, thought this is what all Seattle bands sound like. Okay. Right? Um, and. I love Varian Cause. Okay. They were funky and quirky, and it was like, I've never heard music like this before. Mm -hmm. When I'm coming from like Northern Idaho, I was like, what is this? Right. Um, and, you know, and the megaphone, you know, and all that, that fun stuff. You know, and I've, I've gigged Northern Idaho quite a bit, so I know what right. you're talking about. Right. So it took me about a year after seeing them, and I think that was probably late 86, I want to say, is when I saw them. So I was like, this is what all Seattle bands sound like. <laughs> right, they're quirky and poppy, and like, well, that's kind of interesting. Okay, not really my thing, but it's interesting. Um, and then I forget the first band I, I actually listened to. It, it probably was Green River, but I'm not positive. It was somebody along I those lines those when I was living in LA. Yeah, it was probably eighty. I'm gonna say probably late '86. Yeah, and I was like, what is this? Like, this is cool. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, like I like the poppy stuff a lot. Well, I was but, real impressed by Green River. They came out and did a Dead Boys cover, so that endeared me to them. And also, yeah. they did Queen Bitch, I think, by uh, Bowie. Bowie, the, oh, one of God. their one of their records. So thought this these guys are cool. I like these guys. Yeah. I think I think their cover of Queen Bitch is probably. And apologies to anybody from Green River. Probably the best song they've ever. Done. Well, one thing I do, and I hope this, hope he hears this, because he's he's kind of a, a, a unique character, and I hope he gets takes this with a as a sense of humor thing but mark arm came over and saw the mobiles uh he said he rode the bus all the way from bellevue to see the mobiles at the Edmonds theater when we were playing there oh that's awesome and he's and he came there and he like was a teenager and he like came up to me this is 1979 i think he must have been a you know pretty young teenager and he came up to me i was like 21 or 22 probably 21 not 22 yet mm -hmm. and uh he might have been like 15 or 16 and he came goes i came all the way over here he pulled me here punk rock and all i got this after the show he comes up to me he goes and all i got was last night you know and i go well i go well 
That's cool. He got last night, and that's good. So, so obviously he's, he's this is kind of a mouthy kid. That's cool. But he, you know, obviously went on to do great stuff. So whatever. Yeah, he did. He did. You know, so that so that's cool. But he was he was, he, he obviously had a real agenda. Was a real believer in rock and roll. And oh yeah. I'm sorry he got the wrong impression with the Mob release, but. Well, I, I that's think, tough. You know, Jim. Let's talk about that. That's my bet. My my tough luck. Let's talk about it. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Let, okay, well, actually, I can help you. Nope. Okay. Well, you just, you just went out of camera. But anyway, um, you know, that was one thing about um, the mobile Always release, with the police. That I think you're awesome. That I think is really awesome is that um, it's, it's, I think a lot of people were very unclear as to what you were, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, Live in the Sun, for whatever reason, mm -hmm. which it totally is not, is considered a punk single. Yeah, which it's it's not at all. No, it's, it's very much a '60s like dream pop. With it's kind of hyper. It's kind of hyper, but it's not really it's not really punk so much. It's kind of more like a, I, well, a good good example would be like Georgie Fame, kind of like just hyper hyper pop with a lot of British influence. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely. And and the other one that cracks me up is <laughs> and. <laughs> Well, we'll get to this, but uh, the only time I've actually seen you, actually, I guess I've seen it twice doing this song, but, you know, she got fucked. And I think that people, just because of the title, assumed it to be like a punk rock song, right? Yeah. And it's really, I mean, it is, it, it has... It's, it's kind of more like a rockabilly song. Yeah, it is, it is. And, I mean, there are definitely elements of, of you know, punk in there. Mm -hmm. Especially, like, early punk rock. Well, the, the guitar sounds kind of fun. And, and but it was I wasn't really like was, was really adept at playing real distorted guitar then so it was kind of out of my league. I'd been playing through like amps like transistorized amps like acoustic one fifties and things like that. So I wasn't really known as a guy that had like a lot of effects that sounded like a punk rocker. Um, when I, when Pam Lillig joined the Mice, you know she brought in that kind of sound, and we kind of sounded up with the last few gigs we were together back in late '77, back when we opened for the Ramones and stuff, right? But my my guitar sound was I was real inspired by guys like um, Tom Verlaine and Lou Reed, that sure. kind of stuff. I was really into the New York thing, and you know, and uh, you know that kind of thing. So I was kind of doing my thing, and uh, and we were kind of a poppy sort of kind of band, the Mice. Um, a lot of energy, quite a bit of punk influence, though. If you right. listen to that, if you, um, not that anybody has, I had the only one who really ever heard except for the other members. There's like two songs you can hear on YouTube, but a lot of our tunes did have a lot of that early pre-punk kind of influence, like the Stooges, right, and like uh, you know that kind of thing so, and development. So, so it was kind of in that kind of a vein, but it wasn't really like a distorted kind of a punk sound like the classic, you know. Johnny Thunders kind of morphed into the Sex Pistols and that kind of whole punk sound remote. Right. It wasn't really like that. Well, but, I mean, you always had, had uh, what I, take this as well, but what I've always called like pop punk sensibilities. See, I, right? love, I love that. The thing about me is I just love punk rock and the whole kind of the, everything it came from, like garage rock and glam rock and and uh you know uh, that kind of whole thing so i love all that music and i also love pop and i also love uh you know all the the good pop stuff like the kinks and you know just the really great pop bands so right so i don't know if people are really getting the message but i sort of with that and then that single is kind of similar to the rest of my career it's kind of about it's like i kind of sort of straddle the two 
Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that that definitely comes out. Right? I mean, so a band that I'm thinking of right now is like, um, oh my God, I just thought of the name of the band and it totally went away. Talking Heads. Yeah, what, Talking Heads. Right. Okay. Which which were about as far from punk or blondie for that matter. I mean, blondie. about as far from punk as you could possibly get. Right. But they had a kernel. Right. Well, they, 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 had they, came, that they came from that scene. I mean, the Bondi, uh, when the Stilettos used to play gigs with the Dolls, and they came from that whole scene, you know. Plan. Right. So, uh, so the Bondi had sort of that basic thing like the Dolls had, and then the, but when it became the Ramones, they didn't really go into that. You know, they went, they stayed with sort of a rock and roll, basic pop influence, kind of more towards the girl group and sort of more pop side of the New York Dolls as opposed to the really distorted, crazy, out of control side of the New York Dolls like the Ramones sort of synthesized, you know. So, um, yeah, Blondie was definitely came from a lot of the same influences. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing them when they played in Seattle the first time and when they opened for Iggy Pop with David Bowie on keyboards and that was a really fun show. And they came out to this uh, apartment in, in Ballard the night before that show with Iggy, and uh, I remember meeting uh, Clem and, uh, and Jimmy Destry, and I think uh, a couple of the other guys, but those are the two guys I talked to, and, and they, we, they were doing some kind of jam that I kind of missed out on. I showed up a little late to the party, but Iggy got up and sang a bunch of songs and stuff with a bunch of friends of mine jamming and stuff. And wait, wait, I'm sorry, what, what year are you talking This is 77. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah, so Perfect. over in Ballard, this cool thing, they used to call it the telepathic apartments, and it was a band the telepaths kind of practiced oh, there and stuff. Okay, now that's a, that's a great thing. Like, we could probably talk yeah. a lot about them, yeah, just sure. because they were the telepaths. So and unique. The, the Feelings was another band that one of the guys who right. was in the telepaths formed with actually... One of the guys that I played with a lot, Jack Hannon, was in the in the feelings too. So it was kind of those two bands oh, kind of practiced there. Yeah, the late Greg Reagan. I don't know about Greg, but he was the lead singer of the Feelings. And mm-hmm. so there was a couple of bands that were kind of contemporaries with the Mice. And, right. Uh, and we, I formed up this party, and Iggy showed up. I don't know how he got there, but I think he got there through some friends of mine. Brought him there, and with him, a few of the members of Blondie, and they were doing this jam thing I missed. But after that was over, they were just kind of hanging out. But I miss Iggy. He split like right as I got there, so I missed him. Oh, I mean, yeah, well, I, that, that's a typical I've, I've Iggy, met Iggy move. I met Iggy, and I've talked. I interviewed Iggy actually for my my uh, Sunny Boy. Uh, Oh, that's book, right. Documentary. Yeah, yeah and so. I definitely want to talk about that. Oh, well, yeah. Too. So that's a whole other story. I just, yeah. it, it, it's normal with like, like I friend. said, 45 minutes is going to go by pretty fast. So we get, we can do whatever we want. No, no, no. I, 45 minutes is, is, yeah. I'm trying to keep it concise. No, I mean, well, that's the whole thing, right? So it's not one of my best like gifts. When I was, when I was talking with, uh, <laughs> with Brad Sensel, right? Uh, uh, oh, we yeah. were talking about his career, and yours goes back to, almost exactly the same amount of time yeah, pretty much i mean i always consider him as older than me yeah. but uh he's not really so that's you're a, right around one or two years a couple of years, years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and you know we got through like an hour give or take and and i was like hey i you know i want to be respectful of your time like you know do you want to like wrap it up and it's like but i'm just getting started you know and yeah. so the whole thing is like when you have a career that that's you know the spans 45 years like you know how do you talk about it in like an hour right um however before they this sake of of people who are listening well the good news is most of my stuff is pretty available on the net so it's not that big of a mystery you can find what i do pretty well 
No, absolutely. Okay. Um, but I think like history is kind of important too. So just trying to lay out some guideposts. Here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So well, well, <laughs> let's just step back to just one second. Okay. Yeah, so you did the mice. Yeah. All you, three of them. No, just kidding. <laughs> you, perfect. So and then, then you end up um, at some point opening to the Ramones. Yes. Um, and on their, that was their first Seattle. That was their first Seattle date. It was probably the right. first date by a touring punk rock band. Yeah, right. And that I was think a, that's a legitimate state. The Olympic Hotel was that. What it was, was the, what's now the Fairmont Olympic Hotel. That's right. right. Okay. Okay. So you do that, and was there anything between that and the Moberleys, or? Oh, so I'll, break right. that, I'll break that down as quick as I can. Right after the the mice opening for the Ramones at the Olympic. First of all, the mice opened were were one of the bands that played at the first do-it-yourself punk show on the west coast mm-hmm. about that first point. according to a number of historians not just me and uh, that was called the tmt show that was at the oddfellows hall on capitol hill on broadway there oh yeah yeah and uh it was the the tupperwares which became the screamers right they of course and then the telepaths which became the blackouts and right. a bunch of other bands which eventually became ministry kind of exactly which <laughs> very much became ministry exactly when you talk about bill reefland yeah Right. And then so, and then from from there, uh, that was that that show that was on May first, nineteen seventy six, and then we played a bunch of dates as the mice, and then we kind of changed a couple of members, and then we the last show we did was opening for the Ramones, and that was on March sixth, nineteen seventy seven. That's amazing. So within the year we did a lot, or less than a year we did a lot, and then right after that is when this Iggy Pop thing happened that I told you with with. Lonnie, that was in April, early April of '77, mm-hmm. and I went to that party, and that was literally the reason I didn't wasn't at the party earlier is because I was getting ready to fly to New York to move to New York City, oh, which wow. I did. Okay, so I moved to New York City in '77, and I hung out there, and that's a whole lot of stories just start there. Yeah, I was there for six months, and then from there, I came back here and decided to put out a single really heavily inspired by what I'd seen in New York because mm-hmm. everybody was putting out these indie singles. Uh, there had already been a few before I went there, but then it was becoming a big deal around the country and, and mostly in England and New York City. Right. These punk punk bands putting out their own singles and kind of getting a buzz going through this kind of, kind of magazine-driven, uh, not so much radio-driven sort of scene of punk rock, you know, new bands. And so, um, especially in England, the media was more of some support and the business more supportive up there, but also in New York, bands were getting signed to like Sire Records and stuff, you know, right? So I was, you know, ended up doing that and I put together the single and with a bunch of local friends of mine and that was that Live in the Sun, She Got Fuck single I told you right. And that was among, if not the first kind of punk do-it-yourself single in the Seattle scene. Mm-hmm. Along with a band called Snots, which is kind of obscure, but a really good band. Actually, I've heard of, but they never played, have been able to find they played, anything. They played on, a couple of them played on my single. And also Bill Reefland, who was in the Telepass, so right. also put out an early Do It Yourself single. They were one of the early bands. And I'm sorry, Jim, what year was She Got Fucked? 77. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, was, it was recorded and it was pressed in 77, but I, it didn't actually come out until like... I think the first or second week of January of 78, but it says 77 on the label. Right. So, yeah, so all that. And then after that, I started putting together, I was 
you know, getting, selling them in stores around Seattle, kind of walking around Seattle, putting them in stores and consigning them and all that stuff. And then putting little, little posters on telephone poles about my single and blah, 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 and kind of meeting people that were into music. And so through that whole experience, I played with a few different, you know, perspective bands to get together, Jim Bass Night bands or whatever, to, to back me with my new single or whatever. Mm-hmm. And a variety of different things happened. I played with the mentors, the mentors backed me up. And and we're definitely going to talk about the mentors. Yeah, and the the mentors are good friends of mine from from high school days, and uh, and that's a whole other story. But uh, I, you know, I had a really couple of good experiences with them, kind of learning my tunes. And we did one show at backing me up, which is actually just two songs on their show that we kind of a cameo I did with them Mm -hmm. at this one of the, the first punk club I'm aware of in Seattle called The Bird, right? And then... Um, Which lasted for, like, I, I, I actually it was, looked it up two locations. Like yeah, it was, everything kind of went pretty quick. So so that, that was cool. And then uh, and then I put together a couple other different lineups and just tried to put together things. It's a band called The Pop-Tarts with the drummer from The Mice and a couple other musicians that were mm-hmm. kind of more going for sort of a, you know, a punk kind of a pop thing, kind of like a, you know... A, Elvis Costello, the jam, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and it with a keyboard and a guitar and a bass and a drummer, right. and so that was kind of cool. Uh, that didn't quite really come together, and then a couple other different configurations that didn't quite fly, and uh, finally, uh, this ran to these guys. Uh, this guy Steve Grindle, who had uh, been you know, he played with the Whiz Kids right. in one of their backup bands, and he played with a bunch of local bands that were playing around. Here, one called Jacks, with a couple of people that I still know, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know, uh, one thing led to another. We started putting together a band, and, and we had this guy Steve Pearson who was in the band for a while. Jeff Serrar, who eventually went to the Cowboys, was in our band for a while. We did a bunch of recording with Jeff, and we played one gig with Steve, and with a couple other guitar players, um, and including my friend the late Van Rabinowitz. Uh, who I wrote a lot of songs with all years that I was friends throughout his life, but he unfortunately passed away in the early 2000s from cancer. But the long and short of all that is that we kind of just sort of trial and error. By the end of 78, we had a pretty much the lineup set, and that was uh, the band we sort of played with and did uh, for quite some time. Um, about a year, actually. We played from like 78 to like late 79, and then that band kind of fell apart. But... Uh, you know, and we did enough recording to put out that album, the Morales right. album. Yeah. Which, by the way, yeah. I, I haven't shown you yet, but uh-huh. I, I managed to get a copy of that uh-huh. that's signed. So somebody somewhere sold this signed copy. Okay. Back. Um, I, I, I should have brought it tonight. Oh, today. It's, that's fine. That's um, fine. But I was amazed. Like I looked at it, it was like. Oh, it looks like maybe that was part of like the printing on the it album. Is, it is a bit part of the. Printing. Is it part it, of it? It, it, it is. Yeah. There's. Are like, you sure? That was, that it, was part of the shtick. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well. Yeah. Never mind. Then, Some I of them are actually signed, but there's a there's the, the, it was part of the shtick that I had everybody do. It was kind of like we never really signed any kind of big contract or business thing. We just kind of all just signed this album and said, "Hey, we're." Going to this. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, yeah. the one thing that I love though is that it, it's the sound is is. Phenomenal. Like, I mean, well, thank you. You know, especially for, for 1978, 1979, I guess, is when it was released. Yeah. What's um, There's a There's a lot of not so great recordings from that era. Uh huh. Right? And it, it I'm aware of that. definitely holds up. Like, it, it sounds great. And well, thank you. Yeah. And I think even compared to, I, I know you've done some, you know, 
remasterings, if not complete new recordings of some of those songs. Yeah, done sound. And those original songs, they still hold up. Well, I'm glad you feel that way, and I'm, I'm real proud of that. And I know the other guys in the band are too. And luckily, we're all still alive, which is kind of amazing when you consider mm-hmm. the track record of our our peers. You know, right? I mean, okay. So, you know, Whoa. Like, you're, you're, that was true. No, no. no so, so this is a great little segue, right? So, yeah. you you talk about the mentors, mm-hmm. and of course, when you talk about people who have crashed and burned, like I mean, that's a great example of you know people who have crashed and burned. It's a sad um, story because Eldon Eldon was a friend of mine. We actually played in a short lived band with my friend Paul Hood, who was the bass player in the mice on guitar and me and Eldon and we found this goofy bass player and I won't even mention his name because I don't want to think I'm talking about him. But we had this goofy bass player that was really into Black Oak, Arkansas and that kind of music. And so we put this band together and we were gonna actually do a band. This is like way before the mice and so way before we ever started doing the kind of the glam rock thing even kind of mm-hmm. like probably right before the glam rock thing was kind of our priority but um eldon was a very quiet mild-mannered guy he was uh, just kind of a drummer and you know just kind of a normal kid in high school and so but as punk rock kind of took hold and especially that my she got fucked single um it was was kind of inspiring to him i think <laughs> Well, we we'd been I'd been performing that song prior to the mice. So before the mentors got together, that had already been a part of our show. And so, um, you know, Alden goes, "Yeah, she got fucking So he started coming out of the shell and really started. He was actually in Chopper um, Works, which was that band I mentioned. Right, came the Screamers. Yeah, right. And so he was just a good drummer, and they had a band called the Alden Hope Band with my friend. Uh, Dan Rabinowitz, um, that did like a lot of like you know, they were better musicians than me. They played like Jeff Beck songs and like blues kind of British blues kind of stuff. It was more sophisticated than what I was doing. They were like you know more accomplished musicians and that that kind of shtick. You probably remember from high school the guys that were really good musicians, you know. Right, right. Yeah, and they were, they were, they were really good at it, and they played all that kind of fusiony rock and all stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, Eldon just got really clued in on on doing these songs about you know, you know, rape. <laughs> he he liked the songs about horn shucker and rape. <laughs> you know, secretary hump and. Uh, there was yeah. all these these great songs and uh, natural born loser and he just he, he just came out of his shell and was just freaking hilarious with that black hood thing and all that stuff right and I just thought he was a phenomenal comedian people thought this was serious and go oh no I remember I heard one story about him they, my friend Ed took um, them up to Vancouver and played this this punk club that was run by you know some some lesbians and they took they didn't really have the same sense of humor about it. No, and so they, one of them threw Eldon down a flight of stairs. <laughs> which before probably, they even, before they even had a chance to get out of there, you know. Yeah, which probably just made him more like, "Hey, I'm going to do this." Like, oh no, it, it's and, like it's like going back and, and looking at. Have you seen the? Uh, um, I think it's Jenny Jones or one of those stupid shows he was on where yeah. they just ambushed him. Like, well, what are you talking about, rape rock? It's like, yeah. And you can tell, like he's he's being sarcastic. Like no, Eldon, El people just don't didn't understand Eldon. Eldon was just trying to be funny, and he was hilariously funny. I mean, the thing is, if you didn't get the joke, then the joke's on you, right? You know what I'm right. <laughs> but I mean, at, at some point, yeah. and and I don't want to turn this into you know a, a thing about Eldon. Yeah, I do find him fascinating because <clears throat> I didn't know a whole lot about the mentors yeah. until. I, in fact, I'm wearing 
Coven. Remember the yeah. band Coven from, yeah. from Motley Terrace? Absolutely. Um, that was the first time I ever heard the mentors. Yeah. Right. So at that point, they had kind of gone beyond that. And they were like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're part of like the metal crowd. Right. Which they weren't at all. Like their no. music is far from that. They're also a parody. They're also a parody of meth too. Yeah. Well, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah. they would play with these bands. Yeah. That were you know quasi metal bands. You yeah. Know, from from wherever. Um, and I remember looking the first time I saw the mentors, and thinking, "What am I just sick fucks? Like this is horrible." Right. And 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 literally just like well, a lot of people took them seriously, unfortunately. But, uh, but uh, you know, the thing is, I also am not trying to say anything bad about the lesbian lady that threw him down those stairs because <laughs> she has every right to do that if she well, wants to. Course. And, you know, I can understand why he, him coming out and talking that way and, and on stage and the, the kind of songs they did is, is kind of a, you know, it's not a really good you know, calling card for a lot of people. Well, so, you know, it's, yeah, in this, unless you really are clued into who they are and whatnot, it's probably not best to book them, unless you're really willing to really explain that up front. You know, that might have been the kind of not a great concept to, to book a band like that there. Yeah, I, I think, right. and, and, and I, I think, I think some of this too is, um, parody is, is really hard to understand, like you said, unless you know the people doing it. Yeah. And... Number two, like, we would have to believe there are people who do believe some of the things that he was saying. That's right. That was that became a problem later for those right. guys because they were really people that wanted that thought. Yes, knockout feels good idea. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so, like, I, I think his his own like, hey, I'm going to make fun of this thing or yeah. whatever. Like, it's yeah. funny. Yeah. And then suddenly there are people like, oh, yeah, actually, that's a great idea. Yeah. Right. And so. That unfortunately happens to people who, who tend to be like a little bit ahead of their time. Yeah. Well, the the four F club and the whole nine yards. I mean, we could do the whole show just about Elton. It was a, it was a funny, <laughs> funny show as far as I was concerned. Oh, and, yeah. and the thing is, what I thought it was it would have been better suited for Elton to do, aside from the mentors and making records, which they did and did successfully. Stand up comedy? Absolutely not. I was thinking more actually just actually feature films. He would have been hilarious in a oh, lot of different so. roles because the guy that. was just so and he had just so many great comedic things about yeah. him. They were just faces. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, okay, okay. Yeah. I, I promise we're not going to talk about Elton the whole time. Okay. But I have one more I love question. Him. So, um, I, I'm fond of him. Let's put it that way. I, I didn't know the guy, but I'm fond of him. Okay, cool. Um, You're okay in my in, book, then. Well, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, one. I forget which movie it is. It's one of the exploited movies. I think it was like the the Curtin Curtin Courtney movie, yeah, like okay. whatever, where yeah, he's being right. interviewed. I don't remember the movie. And I'm watching him, and I think that's like a parody of an alcoholic, right? Like, well, not not to say he's not. Well, it look. became a reality for him. Well, that's what I was going to get at, right? Yeah. So he kind of played the game like oh yeah like yeah. look at me like yeah. I'm, I'm just completely but in fucked the meantime up. he became a pretty degenerate alcoholic at a very right. young age yeah so there, there's a danger in that and and absolutely i i you know i i have very few words of wisdom for my, my kid yeah but that's one of them is yeah. like when you play to be something right. you can become that that's really right. easily and you don't even know that's you've right. done it until that's you've right. already done it and that's unfortunately what unfortunately I think happened in a lot of ways too. 
it's just a sad story because I think it would have been great if he would have got it together, cleaned up, and just really understood that he had a great yeah, act right. and yeah. did the and was just did, did the act, you know. Right. Right. Um, okay, so let, let's step away from the mentors just because. By the way, he was never he was never uh, really a jerk or an asshole to me. He was always really nice to me. And I can't really say that uh, I have any reason to be mad, but I know that some people said that he was an asshole. But for me, he was always a really nice guy. I mean, the only interaction with him I, I can remember, which I'm sure there were more, but the only one I can remember is, I, I think it was after a Coven show. It was like Coven forced entry and the mentor was playing like Motley Terrace. And it was like oh, 16 or whatever. Nothing could be better. Uh, actually, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but a friend of mine was, was in one of the opening bands. And yeah went backstage or backstage right like literally behind the stage yeah uh, and Alvin said something to, to some girl who was probably you know she was probably like 15 16 but like things were different back then and he said something like hey babe do you want to blow me and she said no and he's like mm, okay and turned back around to his beer like you know i mean he he wasn't that's all he, he basically just said it to get a shock value and then that was it like okay yeah. mm-hmm. Fuck it, I'm done with that. Right? Um, but it was only when I, when I got a bit, a little bit older, Jim, that I realized that they were not part of that metal. This is hard to explain. I, I didn't realize they weren't part of kind of that like metal scene. Because I, I had never gone back and listened to They're on Metal Blade Records. Right, and that was about it. Yeah. That was the only reason. Yeah. Well, they were, they they, didn't, uh, they were more sophisticated than just metal. They were those guys were musically sophisticated. And we talked to you know Steve Broy. Uh, you know I don't know what you know him by the bass player. He'll mm-hmm. he'll talk. He can talk about you know like you know Motown and and Bill Spector and all oh, yeah. that kind of stuff. He's like really a learned musical guy. He can talk a lot about the all the British rock and all that. He, you know, buddy, the other day he also just has a, gets a big kick out of just silly metal bands too. You know, right? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, exactly. Still I like silly music. metal bands too. Hey, I like silly bands. Period. Like, I mean, they might be fun. giants. If, there's, if it's not fun, I don't know what. The point is. I mean, sometimes right. it's fun. Sometimes stuff that's not fun, it's actually worthwhile too. But fun is fun is good. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, to make it really tight so after after opening for the ramon sorry we're, we're backtracking okay good that's fine um you decided to move to manhattan so that's right what happened there well really i'll just break it down really quick i moved to new york city uh and uh joey ramon the late joey ramon and the guys in ramones really liked the mice and they said look you should go to new york city this is where it's going on and you really people would love you there and of course i've been reading about that in these magazines for a few years and i was excited to hear that it's kind of a you know, acknowledging what I was doing and thought this is a great opportunity. I should go there. And, you know, I went there and, uh, and toughed it out for a while. Um, and, uh, you know, didn't really ever play any gigs, but those guys helped me get into clubs and I, I sort of introduced myself to different people and met quite a few people I was there, mm-hmm. among whom, uh, one couple from France, uh, Lizzie Mercier de Clou. And her boyfriend, Michel Esteban, had a nice loft. And uh-huh. they let me stay there for a couple of months um, there. Um, and I met a lot of people through them, like uh, Richard Hell and Patty Smith and a bunch of other folks like that. 
Wait, and then we were at ground zero, right? And uh, like, they were basically it was, yeah, it was, they were they were these people from France that were kind of running this sort of a, I guess they were trying to get in on the, the scene and kind of do things like a magazine in France or something like that. But they were just basically hanging out there, taking pictures and doing interviews and doing films even of some of the bands and some of the people. So I was hanging out with them and I was hanging out with Arturo, who was the road manager lead, Arturo Vega, right? And he kind of, you know, liked me and he said, you know, I could stay with him after I kind of ran into some trouble with this hotel I was living at up on the right. upper west side, which is a, just a bad scene. Wait, wait, wait. Where on the upper west side? Well, it was called the Hotel Opera. It was on 79th and Broadway, and it was a cheap flea-bag hotel. You know, if you've ever listened to Lou Reed, like, the kind of just hotel rooms he describes some of his songs, it was definitely like that. Right. So it, 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 was, I, it was rough. The reason I'm asking is one of my favorite <laughs> bars when I lived on the Upper West Side uh-huh. was on 79th and Broadway called the Dublin House, which I know has been there for, for I remember decades. that. It's I remember right, that. Right at the subway. I remember right that. There. I wasn't really into hanging out at those kind of bars when I was there. I was in over hanging out like the bars where like all the cool people were, like CBGBs and Axis. Right. But and those kind of clubs like that, the, you know, the, the clubs and stuff down lower Manhattan. But uh, so I just basically had got a job at a record store uh, in Times Square called Colony Records. And uh, I was living in the Hotel Opera and, uh, you know, I had a couple of rough run ins with some of the people in that hotel and got ripped off and things like that. And so I was kind of and then I lost my job at Colony Records. Um, oh, no. And so I was kind of hurting, and so Arturo kind of felt sorry for me. Ramones were on the road, and he was like, yeah, come on, you can stay in our lot, me and Joey's lot. And uh, Arturo had this girlfriend that he met from in Seattle, actually, named Tammy. And she was staying in his bed, and I was staying in, in Joey's bedroom when those guys were on the road. They were on the road constantly. So I was basically there, and they stayed there for think pretty cheap i don't know how much it was so give my 100 bucks or whatever for a month or whatever so basically i was hanging around there and cbgb's was right around the corner right you know and max's was you know quite a ways about a mile north on uh, on, on you know broadway there uh, so it was, it was basically a, a really cool scene i was kind of hanging out going to clubs at night and meeting people and i saw a lot of great shows mm-hmm. and he got me sort of got me where i get into cbgb's for free i never got into max's for free but when i went there i usually went with someone like marty thou the late marty thou oh wow who was the nice. original manager of the dolls he came mm-hmm. to me there to max a few times and so did uh lizzie and those guys so basically i've seen all these cool bands and all these cool shows and uh that was really a great influence and i was kind of hanging out the record stores in new york too and kind of seeing what was going on mm-hmm. and so when that kind of eventually i sort of ran out of money and luck as it were and uh came back to seattle on a greyhound bus mm-hmm. drove all the way across the oh, wow. yeah and and so from that whole experience um I guess I came back to see, some of the bands I saw in New York is amazing. The Heartbreakers, um, obviously the big names like the Ramones, Blondie, and Television, and, and but I saw a million other bands. Didn't you do something in the Heartbreakers at one point? Didn't well, that you? was later. That was later. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And then, so then, so I went back to Seattle, like I said, the Mobley's thing and all this, put out the She Got Buck single and put out the Mobley's album. Then after the Mobley's album came out, I got in a local band in Seattle and played around and saved quite a bit of money doing kind of a half cover, half original which was kind of popular at the time the heats were doing that and stuff mm-hmm. if anybody knows the heats they were a really popular band in seattle in the late 70s early 80s so um and uh so then i saved enough money to move back to new york which i did in october of 80. oh okay 
Okay, so from, it was there from October of 80 until like early 84, like January 84, something like that. I was in New York City. Mm -hmm. So, but I went back and forth a couple times, played some gigs in Seattle along the way in that time frame. And I did have a, a good stay in Seattle in 83. I was a good part of Seattle, in, in Seattle for a good part of 83 too. But most, I was mostly in New York for most of that time. And um, I mean, I got, I did get a chance to and play with Johnny Thunders and, and, and play with those guys mm -hmm. and was friends with uh, the late Billy Rogers who was the, the main sub for Jerry Nolan. Right. Yeah, and I was friends with uh, with Walter too. Um, right. Became good buddies. We used to go see Walter play and he, he and I became friends. And have stayed, stayed in touch really pretty much till the end of his life. And that was a sad one for me. Like, yeah, well, he's Walter is just, I mean, he was such a nice guy. He was a really nice guy and very, and sharp-witted too, you know, not boring, you know. Right. And he, he meant well, but, you know, he, he, he got out of it really and became a broker, pawnbroker, and was making good money in the securities business. And so he had a whole other life aside from the heartbreakers, but, uh, you know, you could tell he loved playing music. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he reminds me of... of you know, James Williamson was the same way. Yeah. Like he went off and, Very and had a software career yeah. and actually made far more money, of you course. know, doing that than, yeah, than yeah. he did, you know, from the studio. And I did I did the securities thing, too, for a while. And Walter and I kept in touch during that time. And, you know, he was he was a lot smarter than me when it came to that stuff and gave me some good advice. But the long and short of it is that I saw a lot of bands and also my, my, I put together a new version of Mobiles in New York. Mm -hmm. bands from guys from there oh perfect and then eventually a couple guys from seattle came out there and played with me there under the that when i was kind of hurting for finding a drummer dave drury the late dave drury came mm -hmm. out and uh played for a while and then al block also who i mentioned right came out there for a while and stuff and that then we had this mobile band going back there and did a bunch of recording and stuff like that and and actually came real close to get signed a couple of different times um but uh it kind of didn't happen uh, for whatever reason, and I think part of it was that I just didn't have the patience to to really um, put down roots there, um, you know. And because I thought I sort of saw the scene in New York changing at that time. It's kind of complicated, but I saw the scene in New York really changing away from rock and roll. Right. It, it, it was much more like a Madonna dance pop kind of thing, and then absolutely, and then the rap rap thing. The rap thing was really blowing up, and I really liked the rap thing, but I didn't. I really wasn't doing it. So I figured the rock mill thing. I was better off back on the West Coast. So I moved back to 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 uh, Seattle. But yeah, like I said, I played with uh, played with played with Johnny Thunders. Did a couple things with him. Played with uh, with Alan Vega's. Um, Girlfriend at that time, who actually was also David Johansson's girlfriend, <laughs> and, and there was a lot of yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't I don't know how to characterize it, but she was a wonderful gal. Um, I hope she hears this because she's one of loves my life. But basically, she and I got together and got married later when I was living in LA. And her name is Anne and 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 Daly one of us. And uh, she um, introduced me to a lot of people and was very. Uh, very generous with her time with helping me sort of make connections in New York and stuff like that. And she was a very nice person. I played in her band. Um, Alan actually introduced me to her. And she was when they were together and everything. And uh, Marty Thau was also a lot of friends with them. I sort of met both of them from Marty Thau. And uh, and so I played with her, and we did a bunch of gigs. We opened for Billy Idol, and we did a bunch of other. We played with a bunch of other cool bands. 
I play with the Smithereens. Uh, did a gig with a couple of gigs opening for them and doing stuff with them. And I played with uh, the Romantics. That was a really big gig I did. Played uh, at this really big show. That was the Moberly's opening up for the Romantics, and that was a big show for us. And it was in like a big, big, huge theater, about a five thousand seat theater called uh, the Savoy. Was like oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And then um, yeah, I just did a bunch of gigs. Played a lot of the New York clubs. Played most of the New York clubs actually. Right. So, so okay. So, I mean, you have this incredibly interesting history, right? And and we're only just barely scratching the surface. I played, I played guitar with Johnny Thomas, like I said. I played bass with him, and I also one, one time we got together and I on acoustic guitars, and I just sort of backed him up while he played a few songs. And I knew a lot of them already, but a few of them I didn't know, and we just kind of jammed one day. Um, but I, you know, and I played bass a little bit with him too, and that was really fun. Said, you know, so dream come true, I guess. I mean, way. he's one of those mythological figures, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And obviously, I didn't meet him because, well, I was just graduating from high school when when he died, right? Um, he died in ninety, right? He right? died in ninety one. Ninety one. Yeah. Okay. So I, you know, I was still very young. And in well, fact, he was even. He was only like thirty eight or nine. Yeah, he, he was very young. Yeah, very young. Yeah. Um, and again, like he, he became this like mythological figure. Yeah, he's still becoming that. He's still actually really growing in popularity. Believe he is. He is. Especially with the internet, people are going, "Who's this cool guy?" Right. He he was so ostracized by the music business. He just got no brains. Right. Because everyone's like, "He's a junkie." Well, yeah, but so was Steven Tyler. You know? Oh yeah. And no, so was you know you know. So there was a lot of junkies. Junkie dumb is, <laughs> you know? is extraordinarily calming. Yeah, right. And but he just didn't play the game the way that the Bizzers wanted to. Right. Yeah. Right. He was kind of kind of a little bit too much for them. I mean, one one thing that I found really interesting is it was I want to say it was in Please Kill Me, and it was like because it basically ends with his death. Right. I mean, right. so it's yeah. you know the history from basically Velvet Underground up until you know his Johnny death. Died. Yeah. And. One of the last scenes is, I forget who it was. I'm not even going to say it because I'm sure I'm going to be wrong, but somebody saw him at, you know, one of the clubs, and I think it was Max's, but I'm not positive. Um, like the, so it was like the, the, the beginning of the death of Max's and the beginning of the death of like, Johnny, right? So it, it's, it's like 80, late 80s. Sometimes. Um, and whoever's being interviewed says, I remember seeing Johnny, and he was literally the lines was, he was fucking green. He, was, he really had a lot of health issues, and that's, that's just a fact. Um, a lot of great people, though, die at that age uh, when, they, when they use those kind of drugs. I mean, right. Lenny Bruce is a legend, and he, you know, his, that's, he, he died at the same exact age. And I think there's some real parallels between those two. He was yeah. like, Lenny Bruce sort of was to modern comedy, like post hippie comedy to what Johnny Thunders was kind of the postmodern rock, you know? Because, like, everybody was influenced by Johnny Thunders, even though, whether they admitted it or not. I mean, Guns N' Roses, oh, uh, all those glam bands, Motley Crue, all that stuff in the 80s. And then all the punk bands, too. The Ramones, obviously, Billy Idol, and Generation X, The Clash, all, all those bands heavily influenced by his style. Right. Well, it's funny, because I've, I've had this sort of conversation with people in the past a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I've always said like there is a 
definite lineage between New York Dolls and Motley Crue. Absolutely. And people get very upset. Like, they get really upset when you they, say that. They, they think he wasn't metal, but he... But it's still, it, this, all those labels don't mean anything. No, it's it, all just rock. You know, and, and plus, the, the first Motley Crue album it was, was rock and roll. It was a punk rock album, man. Totally. I mean, serious. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, the first the, the four, quote, really. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the, the quote metal thing kind of came later. Even punk was, rock is just kind of a ridiculous uh, you know, classification. Yeah. It's still just rock. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Every every generation wants to think what they're doing is is new, like grunge. Oh, we're grunge, or we're alternative. We're alternative to what? You know, it's right. Like, yeah. it's, it's rock and roll. alternative is the one that that makes me crazy. Yeah, I hate right. That. I love I love the I love the music industry expressions like alternative grungers. It's like it just becomes ridiculous. You know. Well, so Spotify now has last time I counted, yeah, over two hundred genres. It's like I don't even know what many of them mean. I mean, like. Well, this, um, this Sunny Boy thing is really my eyes to what really happened here. This music business is really not that old in the class. And if you look at world history, it's about a hundred years old of recorded blues-based music. And they started with electric guitars really in the late '30s with the very earliest recorded electric guitars playing anything. Really playing blues, not even until really the '40s. And uh, the key thing is. All this stuff comes from that. It's all in that classification. It's not classical music. It's not folk music. It's just this kind of electric blues-based noise that is rock and roll. And it's you can add a lot of things to it. You can get a freaking cod piece. You can you know spread it all over the stage with all kinds of lighting and fancy gear, and do all kinds of dynamics and different kind of instruments and pretensions and operas and everything else. But it's just rock and roll, and it's just kind of, and every time it gets too complicated, it always comes back to basic, simple stuff that people crave, and then it rebirths from there. One of my favorite stories is is Blackie Lawless, right? Who was his name just came up the other day. A friend of mine in L.A. This gal said she used to be his girlfriend. He was kind of an interesting story. It's totally an interesting yeah. story. I mean, so he did two different things. He he. I forget what exactly he did, but he did something with Jimi <laughs> Hendrix, like when he was like an unbelievable young, young team. Really? Um, That's it. I didn't know that. And then cool he was a guitar tech for like two or three weeks for the New York Dolls, like something like that, right? So he's got this really interesting lineage. He was with the New York Dolls. He went that. They flew him out to, to when Johnny Thunders and Jerry Nolan quit. They flew him out, and he I don't remember who played drums, but uh, some guy from New York, I think. But. Uh, I remember it was, it was that guy, the, the guy from that band, uh, Pure Hell, I think maybe a spider played drums. Anyway, he went, he went, he 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 went out to flew out to to Florida and played the remainder of their gigs they had booked it down. Oh, wow. okay. So again, this is one of those apocryphal sort of Blackie Gooseman. You know, and his whole thing was, and the reason I love, right, and love. Again, sort of like uh, sort of like the mentors. He's kind of a, a caricature of himself. Uh, I'd say so. But he doesn't. If really, you take really, him seriously, well. you got to be kind of maybe needs some therapy. Oh, yeah. First of all, first of all, he is a devout Christian. Number one. So there's that. Yeah, I didn't know that until a few. Years well, that ago. happens in life because eventually it's either that or you kill yourself. For some people, not for all. Exactly. Some people can do things and not become heavily religious in order to overcome some of their problems. But, you know, when you act like Johnny Thunders did, you know, he'll kill you. Oh, without it. Without it. And 
I mean, that that is a, a phenomenal lesson for people to learn. Unfortunately, most of the people who need to look, know that lesson yeah. die before they know the lesson. Exactly. You know, I, I think it's well, like, what, whatever makes you live longer is, is a good thing for me. So if it's Christianity or whatever, or, you know, Buddhism or whatever, more power to you. Yeah, no, I, and I'm totally um, my, my comment about Blackie was not kind of a, a ha-ha, he's a Christian. It was more of there's an irony there. It's sort of like Alice Cooper, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Alice Cooper's the same way. He's, he's extraordinarily conservative. You know, diehard born again. He is conservative. I don't know much about his politics. He's probably a heavy, heavy dude. Like he, he was totally a Trumper. Trumper, no, totally. Totally a Trumper. Okay. Um, but for whatever reason, he I was, love his music, though. Uh, me too. And, yeah. and for whatever reason, he was able to get past that, whereas a lot of musicians weren't. Um, and, I mean, part of it Anything is, let's be honest. I can, totally, I can totally get past all that political stuff. If someone has good music, it doesn't matter to me. Someone will just, oh, this guy's you know, the Republican. I can't, well, no, it's music. Like Elvis, oh, he was a racist. Well, he had good songs, and he was a, he was a good singer, a great singer. So right. it, whatever, you, whatever you do, it's, it's nice when you can just judge people on what they do and not get into, like, you know. I mean, one, you know, at one point, you sort of want to pull the, pull the plug on guys like Gary Glitter, who's a pedophile. Right. Of course. And that became hard to like him after that. But, but you can still like the songs, like and, oh yeah, and that's yeah, that's my great songs. Yeah, well, actually, <laughs> it's my generation knows too, rock and roll and rock and roll too. Right, right? exactly. Well, you 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 missed out on the the glam era, you know, to some degree because you're so much younger than me. But he had a bunch of great songs. You know, obviously, do you want to touch me? You're aware of oh, that's John right. Jan, that's right. You know, of course. But he had a bunch more, which yeah. which is strangely and kind of sadly ironic. Yeah, but and whatever. Yeah. You know, and the thing is. Were he the only rock and roller that was unfortunately obsessed with young people, I'd go, wow, that's great. But a lot of rock and rollers were. And, I mean, a lot of notorious rock and rollers were into teenage girls or teenage boys. Oh, yeah. And that's just facts. Oh, yeah. And it's not, it's not pretty, but it no, is. But not. He was, he's not the only one that was like that. It's not. But at the same time, and obviously I don't want to spend a huge amount of time talking about this particular topic, um, but in the early actually 80s i would say even into the maybe very early part of the 90s it wasn't uncommon to have like you know, a 21 year old boy and like a 17 16 year old girl it was much much less much less com- much less common to that yeah and so whether that okay. was correct or not those are who knows but possibly unhealthy relationships oh sure but i'm sure yeah, but not necessarily always sometimes of uh, someone who's of legal age like 16 and have a good relationship with someone who's 30 it's possible it is possible. i'm not saying I'm, i don't want to try to judge anybody right and again <laughs> I, I didn't want to really dig into that topic but it's, it's just one of those things that that you know, people, we do this a lot in society where, where we retroactively judge people yeah. for things. So it's like, well, whatever. The thing now, is, we live in a time when that is really easy to judge them. It was a time when a lot of things were different, and that was very, very common in a lot of cultures. Right? Somebody young, they hook him up with some young boy, they hook him up with the older woman, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Jim, I want to keep going here, but it's starting We're getting a little bit down. loud. We're getting bogged down in the No, it's not, it's not that. Like, I don't care about that. Okay, it's, just, it's starting a little bit loud, so if, okay. and because we're doing the mic thing. Um, I'm so, so generally inappropriate, so that's no, I don't bother <laughs> Inappropriate is, is I'll wait until someone comes out and puts me in handcuffs. Nah, I'm not worried about that at all. 
Um, but I have one last question to ask you. Perfect. Something about you that nobody knows. Or, or I'm sorry, that nobody would guess. How's that? You know, um, don't say I'm an open book, because that's what everybody says. No, I won't say that. You know, what? what something nobody knows is that, well, I mean, like I said, I've been pretty forthcoming with my information. Um, well, obviously something that nobody knows about me, the real facts about me this year, I lost my mom and my brother, and I live in a very small family, and my uncle. I live in like a very small family, and so that was like probably the three most important people in my life as far as family. Oh, man. Except for my kid that I've been raising, and, mm -hmm. she, and she's not my actual blood relation, but as far as blood relations, that was the three most important people in my life, probably blood relation. But, and so that that's something that I've been having to deal with, is just the loss of, of people that were close to me. And so that's just something that I don't talk about a lot, and I might as well tell you, and that's been, that's been kind of a hard thing. For me to, to process and absolutely just kind of move you know when you have a, a small family to begin with and those are the main people in your life that you sort of you know either come to when you need some support or that those people come to you when they need support and you're there for them that's hard well, without a doubt so, so i have one last question i'd like so i don't know that's maybe bringing you too far down it's not no, no 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 i mean that's so i'm that's processing cool. that loss right that's what I'm doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, just to, to kind of kick things in a different direction, just for, for you know a couple of minutes, what is your prognosis for where music is going? I think music is really at a great place right now. I know that sounds really optimistic and kind of, you know, sort of, you know, kind of silly, but it really is. Because here's what I see is going on right now. For years, it was sort of stuck in this kind of sort of weird kind of not knowing which way to go when digital music came first came out, and you were part of that too. Is basically a lot of the songwriting and a lot of the stuff just kind of went on hold. Everything was all about trying to figure out this digital technology. A lot of people said, "Look, you have to have a drum machine. You have to have synthesizers. You had to do this techno music." A lot of people were saying, "Hey, you can do the guitar thing and do steer thing." But everything kind of became sort of, you know, changed with digital music sharing and all that kind of stuff. Now I see it as being this whole new resource, digital archiving, mm -hmm. to where people have been able to absorb so much musical information. And I'm really optimistic that it's going to produce a lot of great new music in the next few years. And I think with this COVID thing, we've all kind of been internalized and sort of had some time to really take time to really... Uh, see what's going on and see where we are a little bit more. And I really think things are going to turn around. A lot of great songs are going to happen. A lot of great bands are going to happen once this once things get under control. No, I don't think I don't think COVID's ever going to be under control. I think I think people are going to still be wearing masks like ten years. Look, it, it, it's, it's here's the way that I look at it. In our lifetimes, I agree. I, I don't think that's going to happen. In my kids' lifetimes, maybe we're gonna yeah we're gonna we're gonna be getting COVID shots every year like we get flu shots and polio shots and things like that and you know measles shots and things like that 
but the key thing is it's it's really changed people a lot but i really see um a real renaissance of music in the near future and that's why i'm really focused on trying to get out see i've been playing glenn i've been playing this northwest thing to make a living for a long time and i kind of sort of put the music business in general well, I get chasing around A and R people with my tape and all this other stuff. I just kind of been doing less, much less of that. Just doing my music and kind of leave, leaving it where it is. I've released all these albums and stuff like that. And so I'm really focused on right now. I've found a lot of success in in, in other places. So people responding well to my music. I'm really kind of moving into a mode of traveling. And I'm going to get. That's going to be sort of my focus. Is smart doing a lot more long, long distance traveling, not just traveling to to you know to play gigs in Port Lane, but like traveling mm -hmm. to play like gigs in Europe or or you know around the other parts of the world in the United States and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of been going to be my thing is is going out there and just doing what I do and playing my songs for people outside of where I'm at and just taking some chances and hopefully meeting some new people and. And just seeing where that goes, and um, I've been kind of, I've sort of fine-tuned my show, and kind mm -hmm. of got sort of assembled my material pretty well, and I think it's time for me to bring it on on stage to other places. Well, I think so too. I mean, like you have, a, and that's my optimistic hopes. You have a very unique take on music, right, from my perspective, right? and that is the the power pop, plus punk. Plus, God help me, Jim, almost a country sort of thing, too. Yeah. Like, well, you've got I, a lot I of that. At, it, it sounds like country, but it, I look at it as, as American roots music. Right, of course. Whether you can call it blues, you can call it country, it's just, it's all the same kind of mishmash. Mm -hmm. It all comes from the same place, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, but I see, I see the pop thing, I see the punk thing, and I also see the uh, American roots thing. That's kind of what I do. Yes. So, on that note, well, first of all, one more thing. I've got a, a friend of mine from Ireland coming on. Cool. Uh, next Friday, who you'll love, uh, Pete Gardner. Wonderful. Um, he's very much Americana, but he's very, very, very much Northern Irish. So it's, it's. I love his music. And I'm gonna share and by the way, that kind of music is probably more popular in Ireland than it ever has been in the United States. It's really yeah, there's no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there's arguments that that's where country music came from was Ireland. And, and there's a lot of Irish influence in country music. For sure. Yeah, there's no doubt. Jim, yeah. Hey, I love you, buddy. Love you too. I'll see you soon. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye. Great.